Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the 2020 Election Edition. We are here to take you from election to inauguration, examining the issues through the lens of history. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. Uh, we are looking at uh, the end of February 2021, and we're going to do a Black History Month podcast. And I am one of your co-hosts, Matt Schock. Across from me, as always, is Jeff Hudson. And Jeff, you are the king of beers. And what beer are we drinking today? Well, we're not drinking beer today. I noticed that. <laughs> Sorry, I did not bring the beer. Uh, what I wanted to do is a celebration of Black History Month. You know, they, you, sometimes you'll see lists of what, how to celebrate right. Black History Month. And I thought, and a lot of times it's like doing something that nobody would normally do, which is means that's a bad list. But I thought, what better way than to go find a, a, a beer brewed by African Americans? Yeah. I mean, and also you support black-owned businesses in right. a way. There can't be a better way to celebrate Black History Month, I don't think. Than economically than, supporting African-American businesses. Yeah, you can't, you can't do it. Because uh, one of the things, and you know, we'll talk about it, is denied capital, denied ownership of things. And, you know, it's just the best way you can— You really can't have freedom until you have economic freedom. Right. And, and also a stake in the system. Right. Which is— Political yeah. and economic freedom have to— Almost go hand in hand. Yeah, but uh, anyhow, so I I, I looked up, uh, you know, online. I got online. I found an article in Forbes magazine about the Harris family and they're trying. It's a, a black family and they're trying to uh, start a brewery in Harrisburg. Uh, the guys' name are Sean Harris, Timothy White, and Jerry Thomas. And as I as I started to read about these guys, I was like. There's, it's so cool when people want to start a business. But here's a, a, a little uh, a quote from uh, Mr. White. As a whole, the black community drinks liquor. The cheap stuff, the expensive stuff, you name it. So what liquors are black people drinking at an all-time high? Let's see if we can match that to a beer and go from there. Oh, that's a good idea. Or let's try okay. food pairing. What are black people eating that we could pair with? So all of a sudden you got uh, yeah, this guy wants to explore beer making. And, and what's interesting about that is he's looking just not to break into the beer business. He wants to pull African-Americans into that experience. He's not saying, hey, let's make a craft beer that's going to sell and even to white Americans. Not that he doesn't want white Americans sure. to buy it, but he's thinking about the African-American customer and bringing them into this world. And, and it turns out that the craft brewery business is encouraging diversity. And part of that is they've sort of saturated their market, which is, you know, white males predominantly. Right. And so this is good for the craft brewing industry, too. Um, but anyway, I, I started thinking about them. And, and, you know, when I was younger and, and would drink more, I used to do Boilermakers once in a while. Do you oh, know what Boilermakers yeah. are? 
I know what they are, and it's been since college, and since I have one, you're going to, have to tell me what a Boilermaker is. Well, you can you have plop something in something, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the old school way to do it, in the way people used to do it in Indiana, when they're drinking, is you, you get a beer, a draft beer, and you get a shot of whiskey, and you just put the whiskey in it. You know, when I and, and when I uh, started reading about him, he wants to maybe pair something, a mm-hmm. beer, and look, I was thinking. Well, he might be onto something there. Might be, you know, and you drink. Now, I can't do a lot of Boilermakers. I wouldn't imagine. Nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to like them, you know, and it was fun to just drop that yeah. shot in Ka-tum. the glass. Yeah. yeah. And and so I was thinking, yeah, this guy might really be onto something. Uh, and he does. He wants to uh, put his brewery in Allison Hill, which has sort of been the center of Harrisburg's African-American community for a long time. Uh, he's... He, he wants uh, to name his lager, Street Dreams L- Lager, and uh, he wants to make a, a Bando Black Stout. Now, he's not up and, and running yet, and at the, you know, at the end of our podcast, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but there's also another brewery called Two Locals in Philadelphia. And the, uh, there's two brothers, Rich and Mengitsu Kolor. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And here's what they have on their website we love everything about beer the ingredients the smell the taste the process over the years our pride and passion has grown for crafting unique and flavorful flavorful beer and i'm you know you want to i want to drink this guy's beer yeah you do too no you want to see what these guys are producing but here's they've already produced uh, uh, some beer and it, it seems to be popular. Uh, then and they have a genius for naming things. Their brown ale is they call their Nubian, Nubian beer, and they pr- they produced a beer with the Harris family. It's a toasted coconut imperial stout. That's a little different take on stuff, right? And they call it Black is Beautiful. <laughs> so, now. If we had a toasted, now I'm, I'm getting thirsty. If we, we would be happier if we had a toasted coconut imperial stout <laughs> no. here. But I couldn't get one. Right. I couldn't get one. It's, so, not, it's not for sale yet, or just it's, it's not locally for oh, sale? Oh, yeah. Uh, that is for sale, but I couldn't. I went to the beer distributor and they didn't have it. And the Harris Brewery has been slowed down by COVID, okay. their opening. But I think we got, you know, we're, we're teachers and I think we need a field trip to, to there. We will have Some a field trip. Yeah. So today we're going to be doing a little bit on Black History Month. Um, just a little history on Black History Month. It started as Black History Week um, in February. And actually, this is from the 1920s. And they chose February because of the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass on February 12th and February 20th. So it really became a way of honoring those two individuals. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, obviously, if you're not familiar with Frederick Douglass, uh, runaway slave, uh, came north, um, uh, fierce, uh, fighter for emancipation and then equal opportunity after the war. If you've not had a chance to read any of his materials, uh, you need to read his autobiography. And also you need to look up his July 4th speech that he made, which is very powerful. So it starts off in just that one week of February. Then by the 1970s, it's taking on a whole week. Um, the United Kingdom uh, joined in in 1987. Canada has... Uh, 
um, joined in in 1995. The Republic of Ireland joined the we, uh, month, celebrating that month in 2010. So that's where we are in a modern standpoint for um, African-American or black history month. Um, before we start on this great story that you've researched and has published in today's paper, I want us to answer two questions. The first is, if there's Black History Month, how come there's not White History Month? Yeah, well... You want, you want to tackle that one? <laughs> yeah. Because that's something you will hear. Sure, sure. Why not have? And, you know, the the idea, I think, is sort of parallel to Black Lives Matter. And the right. question, well, what do you mean? White lives don't matter. But, you know, the fact is... The vast majority of histories of the United States and articles uh, until recently were written by white people, especially white men. And they were, not surprisingly, (laughs) they focused on European culture and white people in the United States. So it's a corrective. It's, you know, if you say we're going to have a Black History Month, it's a corrective. We, we, we've neglected the, those stories, and now we're going to tell them. To me, I, that's how do you look at it? Well, I view it the exact same way, that this is not – there's always been White History Month. It's every month. Yeah. Um, open up any textbook and just thumb through it. It's dominated by uh, European Americans, uh, white Americans. Um, I don't think the textbooks were written to be overtly racist. Like, we're going to write this textbook. A few of them were. We're going to exclude black people on purpose. I don't think modern textbooks are written that way. No, they're not. Certainly the textbooks of the past. 20 years, probably. Right. But it it is. It's a corrective. Um, The South, during the time of the Civil War, had nine. was a population of 9 million. 4 million were black. What's their history? You don't know, do you? you? You know the history of the Confederacy. You know all the generals. You know all of those Southern aristocrats, but you don't know the, the history of almost half of the people in the South. And that's just not a Southern problem. That's a U.S. problem. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. It's a corrective. The other part I would like to address is black pride. Um, this idea that there's black pride. Why isn't there white pride? And I'll take this one. Okay. Um, The answer is there is white pride. Uh, We celebrate being from Ireland. We celebrate being from Germany. Uh, If you're African- Columbus Columbus Day, it was pushed by (coughs) Italian-Americans. For Italians. If you are black in America, um, most likely this is true for you. You don't know where you're from. Um, slavery not exactly, only, yeah, exactly slavery not only stole the freedom from the people who were enslaved, it also for, forever stole the identity of everyone who came after. You don't know where you're from. Uh, you don't know what tribe you're from. You don't know what part of Africa you're from. So the they're only thing that binds this group together is skin color. They are black in America. They would love to be able to celebrate being part of a specific tribe or a specific country, but it was denied to them. So this is what is left, is black history and black pride, which makes sense if you understand it in that context. Right. And black pride was necessary. And think about, and it's a very hard thing to think about, think about something as intimate as your skin color. Something you wake up and look every day. And, you know, mine's kind of a, a, a beige and pink. It's not really white. But think of something that is intimate of your skin color. And you're taught that that's bad somehow. Right. I mean, it, you have, again, you have to make 
a corrective to that at some point if you're ever going to get out of that hole that other people are trying to put you in. And, you know, James Brown, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You have to have a black pride movement as a corrective because somebody's been trying to, to take that pride away from you for several hundreds of years. Right. I A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to trace my lineage, and I was able to trace my lineage to the first Shockey that came to the United States in 1737. I was able to trace the Shockey name back to Switzerland to the 1500s. Right. Um, as an inbred group. Obviously, yes. <laughs> There's only two of them. <laughs> um, and I even have the name of the first Shockey's, uh, Jake Shockey's name on the 1800 census, mm -hmm. which is sort of an amazing thing. But anyway, I can do that. That's white privilege. And right. it's if you're black in America, you can't do that. You very should, hard. There's some, a few, few groups. Yeah, I very mean, few. If you came after the Civil War, but if you trace, and a vast majority of African Americans will trace their lineage well before the Civil War, um, you will run into a roadblock about 1865 because there are they were even denied the right to know their own birth dates. Many times you were born in the spring of such and such a year, so your your identity was denied to you. So I know that our listeners probably don't think about the negative, like, oh, there should be black pr white pride, there should be white history month. But I do think it's something to address because I think the question comes up en enough that there has to be a reasonable answer. And those are the reasonable answers for black history, black pride. Right. It makes complete sense. Okay, so today, uh, Jeff, you are published in the paper, the Sunday paper, and today is Sunday, February 29th? 28th. 28th, I'm sorry, it's not a leap year, the 28th. Um, so I, you're gonna probably be listening to this a few days afterwards. If you go back in the Sunday uh, perspective, uh, Jeff has a great article. It's actually over 1,300 words, um, which is a huge part of the newspaper when you take a look at it. And he is detailing the history of an unknown black hero yeah. right here from Lancaster County, right. um, somebody that should be in history books but isn't. Uh, something that probably should be taught in local history classes, but probably isn't. Not because, it's it just because this is history that's not taught, it's not researched, and this is a corrective, a small corrective, right. mind you, um, for black history. But Jeff, uh, you're going to tell the story. I'm going to ask some questions along the way. Um, just to give you a backdrop to this, this story is taking place pre-Civil War and Civil War and is dealing with one of the first African-American officers uh, in the Civil War. Yeah, that, that's correct. And, you know, this is uh, Stephen Atkins Swales is this man's name. And he's not unknown. He, he has a Wikipedia page. So people have known that he w was one of the first black officers. And he's gotten some recognition. But until very recently, he was buried in a grave that had no marker. Now, there's some down in South Carolina. Um I know about him. I got interested in him because I went over to the Mount Zion uh, Cemetery in Columbia, which is where the African Methodist Episcopal Church used to bury people. Uh, and that cemetery was cut by a roadway, Route 30 mm -hmm. bypass, and it was overgrown. And it wasn't until, you know, 20 years ago, some a group of Boy Scouts and some uh, church leaders decided that they would. Uh, you know, cut the brush down, try to locate the graves as best they could because some of the, the a lot of the markers were knocked down and moved around. 
And when I was over, I knew a lot of the so-called colored infantry was buried over there. And there, there are quite a few from Columbia. And, and we'll talk about Columbia and all the freedmen and all the freedmen who are actually middle class right. in Columbia, which is uh, uh, an unusual thing at that time. Uh, but that's the that's where Swales was born in, in Columbia. And, and the reason I know about him is there's a big picture of him in the cemetery, even though he's not buried there. He's okay. buried in South Carolina. So I I started to read about him. And, and, and Columbia is along the river. We're not very far from, it's not very far from the Mason-Dixon line. So it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And one of the guys that came north there was named Stephen Smith. And he stayed there and he started a timber business, a lumber business. And if you know about the river and the canal at that time, they used to uh, cut a lot of trees in New York and Pennsylvania and float them down the river. Right. And in Columbia, they'd pull them out, and that's where the they lumber was processed. Oh, they milled them in They Columbia. milled them there. Okay. And Stephen Smith was also a, probably the majority shareholder. S- and, Smith and was African-American. He was African-American yeah. at, at the uh, Columbia's biggest bank okay. uh, there. Uh, so you had this wealthy guy. And he would sometimes, when, when there was an estate where someone died in the South, he would go down and buy slaves and as a way to free them and, and bring them north. Mm. And they settled in Columbia. They started to work at the lumberyard there. And they were able to purchase homes in the Tow Hill section of Columbia. And um, what happened? Well, what happens when black people start getting ahead in the United States? Well, what happens is you're okay to move ahead as long as you don't move ahead of me. <laughs> right, right. And so there was a lot of racial friction. And in 1834, there was a race riot. And in 1834. 34. And uh, you know, Swales was born in 1832. But by the time he was eight, his family picked up and moved to Mannheim to escape, which is a town in northern Lancaster County mm-hmm. to escape the racial tensions that were happening in Columbia. And uh, from there, he eventually moved on to New York, and that's where he enlisted in the 54th Massachusetts. Okay, so when you visit that graveyard, I've been there, uh, it's almost underneath a a bridge, isn't it? Well, you, you go underneath a bridge headed out of Columbia. Okay. And, yeah, so... It, if you have a chance, if you're in Columbia, and this is Columbia, Pennsylvania, right on the Susquehanna River, um, it, it's it, if you ever have a chance to visit the graveyard, it is worth the visit just to realize that um, you're standing with the men, many of the men who went to 54th Massachusetts. And if you don't know the story of the 54th, you just need to watch the movie Glory. They came out, I think, in 89 or 88 or 90, right around there. Does an excellent job of retelling their story uh, about how important the black soldier was to fighting for the freedom of black, for, for slaves. And this is something that history again, these overlooked parts of history, that it is the white man who came south to free the black man, that the black guy was just waiting there in bondage to white guy could cook. That's not true. Uh, African-Americans were fighting for their own freedom. Almost 200,000 African-Americans. Well beyond their proportion. 
in the population. Right. So there was many more proportionally blacks. And, and they had been discouraged from becoming soldiers at the beginning of the war. And they were they paid were, less. Yeah, well, yeah, but they were told at the beginning of the war that it was a white man's war. Initially, there was a bunch of enthusiasm and a whole bunch of, uh, I know there was a unit in uh, Cincinnati, a group of people, and they, they offered their services right away. And they're told, no, it's a white man's war. So um, there could have been even more soldiers had the North been amenable at the start of the war to having, uh, you know, infantry units. And, of course, they served in segregated units. It's the colored infantry. Right. And they served with white officers. Yeah, when, when um, actually, if we take a look at that um, Mount Zion, I think that I, f I found six graves from the 54th Massachusetts and probably another 12 to 16 that are marked. And there may be many more there because, like I said, some of these graves are unmarked of other units of the colored infantry, but at least six from the 54th. Uh, one of them was a guy named William Edgerly. He was killed on the assault of Fort Wagner, we'll talk about. And another was captured and put in Andersonville prison. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, a guy named George T. Prosser. But anyhow, let's go back to the story of the 54th. Uh, there had been units in the Union Army of freed slaves before this. But Massachusetts Governor Andrew was an abolitionist. And he was keen on, on forming a unit of mostly freedmen. And what so he, you know, uh, got the legislature to pass, authorize, and got authorization from the War Department to create the 54th Massachusetts. But he didn't have, there weren't enough black guys in Massachusetts to uh, fill out this regiment. So he got a group of recruiters, including Frederick Douglass himself, to go around. And Frederick Douglass visited Columbia, I believe. And Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And they recruited, and they were successful, and they got enough freedmen from all over the North. Like uh, like I said, um, Swales was in New York when he was recruited for this. And it's, it's kind of ironic. He would have at least six guys and, and probably more. On one count, I, I, there's 18 guys from Columbia who were in the 54th. So he would have met people he probably knew when he was a, a very young, when he was like in elementary school or whatever okay. in Columbia. But uh, so they they join and they're, they're, they cannot be officers. There's People are very afraid, Lincoln and the War Department are afraid that if you allow black people to be officers, it will alienate white public opinion. And there is the, also the truth that there wasn't a lot of military experience because they weren't allowed to be in the army. Right. So, I mean, there, there's a practical aspect, but most of it was public opinion. So they knew that going in, but they thought they were going to get their 13 bucks a month. Right. And you've seen the movie Glory, which talks about this and, and illust recreates this. They were in there and they got... They were given $10. The War Department said, well, we'll give you $10. $3, which you can use as a clothing allowance. So really, it's 7 bucks. Right. So you're getting almost half what a union private was paid. Well, men of 54th were freedmen. They weren't used to being treated like this. So they said, no, we're not going to take any pay. We'll just, you just keep it. We'll take our rations. You, you know, you just keep the pay. That was a terrible hardship for people, including swales. And... Um, so they just held out, and eventually, you know, the War Department, the, uh, you know, uh, influenced Congress. Congress passed an act, and in 1864, they were given equal pay. And if you were a freedman, like most of the men in the 54th, you were also given retroactive pay. 
which you should be. So they, they took care of that, but they still couldn't be officers. So now you've seen the movie Glory. Right. All right. Well, tell me about the charge. The very the charge, which kind of, do you remember that? Right. So Fort Wagner is uh, North Carolina. South Carolina. Uh, I'm sorry, South Carolina. And it is a uh, the fort that's holding one of the last ports open in the South. Right. It's Charleston. So Biggest you, slave port in the South. So this becomes sort of... African, the African-American soldiers bunker hill. Like this is the moment where the world in essence is watching. If you're on the 54th Massachusetts, you have to understand that you're not only representing yourself, but you're representing all African-Americans, all black soldiers. Everyone is watching this. And how are you going to perform with the assault on Fort Wagner? The assault ends up almost being a suicide mission. The fort is very heavily fortified. The runway, if you will, to the fort, even the charge, at some point is under not is underwater and you're slogging through. Yeah, you're between through. a marsh and the ocean. And you're slogging through up with water up to your knees. Um, and it's sort of this runway that leads up to the fort. And the 54th Massachusetts, I believe, is the first unit to lead this assault. Right. Um, they temporarily breach the fort. Uh, and they get on top of the wall? And they're just gunned down. Yeah. Uh, Shaw is killed. Uh, Robert Gould Shaw, the leader of uh, the white, um, was he a major at the time? The colonel. colonel. Lieutenant. Uh, colonel. And it ends up in a glorious, vic- victorious defeat, if you will. Right. Um, militarily, it's a defeat. But it went to show that um, sort of like Fredericksburg demonstrated the bravery of northern soldiers, even though it was a great defeat. Um, Fort Wagner demonstrated the bravery of the African-American soldier in uh, attacking that fort and going up the wall when they knew they had to know that there was no way this was going to work. Right. And uh, and not only that, you know, they when they joined there was some rumors in the South that if a black man was captured, he would be executed or sold into slavery. These are all freemen. They were risking not only their, 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 their lives, but also their freedom. Now, it's interesting that after this battle, and members of the 54th are captured, in the assault, you know, after the, mm-hmm. their Lincoln issues in order, and you know, you're messing with Lincoln now. This right. is not James Buchanan anymore. And, and Lincoln issues an order and says, if if any Union soldier is killed in violation of the rules of warfare, a Southern soldier <laughs> will be killed for everyone. If if a Union soldier loses his freedom then a Confederate soldier will be put into hard labor at that time. So he's not messing around. And, but there were, and it's, you know, it's beyond our, the purview of what we're talking about now, but there were massacres like at Fort Pillow. Yeah, Fort where, Pillow is a very famous one. For, yeah, for, where black people were captured and they were killed. Black soldiers were captured and they're killed. So it, it wasn't, this wasn't a theoretical thing for these guys. You know, this was real. They knew this going in. That that uh, actually the danger they would be exposed to would be even greater than the danger for a, North, uh, a white soldier. And Robert Gould Shaw, who lost his life 
Uh, usually an officer was been, would have been treated differently than a private when he was killed. Uh, Robert Gould Shaw was stripped of his shoes and buried in a mass grave with the rest of the black soldiers, almost in a sign of disrespect. It was a sign of disrespect um, for him. And I think Robert Gould Shaw's father said he couldn't be prouder where his son would be buried with his, with his men uh, charging that wall, which almost, sort of almost, hate to say, gives me a little bit of a chill to think about a father who'd have to say that. Uh, that I could not be prouder of someone and how they were buried. But Well, now, at this action, uh, Sergeant Swales uh, makes it to the top of the wall. He's shot and, twice. Well, no, he's not shot twice. He's with two white officers. One of them gets shot and killed immediately. Another gets mortally wounded, but he's on the top of the wall with them. Uh, but the guy you're thinking of that shot twice is Carney. Okay. And he, he has planted the flag at the top of the wall. And then, of course, when they retreat, you can't let the flag get captured. Right. And he runs up, grabs the flag again, and, and he's shot. Uh, he's shot twice. In fact, his wounds are so severe he has he is discharged from the army after this. But for that act, he those actions are the first which a black man will get the Medal of Honor for uh, William Carney. So anyhow, after this, Swales continues his service uh, in the in the fifty fourth. Uh, and they, they, he takes part in the Battle of Olesti, which I didn't really know about these battles. Now, when I read your when I read your yeah. uh, article, the fact that he got injured in Florida, right? I didn't know. I mean, I, I obviously I assumed there had to have been some engagements in Florida, but I could not have named one. Yeah, Gettysburg's not in Florida, no. right? Yeah, most Chancellorsville, of thinking, yeah. and all that. No, it's Virginia, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, yeah, Tennessee. South Carolina, Georgia, yeah, yeah. but not Florida, right? Anyhow, he's in the Battle of Olesti, which is a poorly planned battle. The 54th kind of saves, comes in and saves the retreat so they're not all captured. But in that battle, he's wounded in the head. He, he keeps leading his men on this organized retreat. And he finally passes out because he's lack of blood. And a uni, uh, one of his officers sees him lying. And he's taken back in a cart. So... Because of his actions and, and, you know, and Fort Wagner and Olesty leading men, they thought, well, and this guy could be an officer. Now, they're not supposed to be officers. Black men are not supposed to be officers. But uh, Governor Andrew and others start to push him and say, well, I, this guy needs to be promoted to second lieutenant. That's the next thing after sergeant. What did it take for him to get promoted to second lieutenant? Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, a thousand people, millions of people have been promoted to second lieutenant for probably very marginal things. Yeah. He has to do something heroic at Fort Wagner, then get shot in the head. And then finally, you know what? I think he would make a good second lieutenant. Yeah. And he's leading people right. the whole time. Right. You know, he's at the, at the head of the call him. So, uh, you know, they recommended to the War Department, and the War Department say, inquires if he, because he's given a leave to go visit. And, and they inquire after this visit from him, it, does he have any African heritage? Because if you do look at pictures of him, clearly he is of mixed race. Um, and the, I, the thought of the day was basically one ounce of black blood meant you were black. Right. He had to be in a black unit, didn't he? <laughs> right. So if you look at pictures of him, he, his hair is more European, and, yeah. but he definitely is dark complected. So there would be, I don't say a natural question of it, but um, it does make sense that they would inquire. Well, they would inquire, yeah, and especially if you looked at that as disqualifying. Right. And that's the way they looked at it. Right. And when uh, Shaw and others said, yeah, uh, uh, 
not Shaw, Governor Andrew and others said, yeah, he is. He's, uh, they said, well, they denied his uh, commission. They said he couldn't be. And so <laughs> this, this kept on. They went back and forth. And uh, finally, uh, he was given his commission, but only after Governor Andrew said things like, well, even though he's not all Caucasian, he's still a brave soldier. And one, one other guy said, and, and he's almost white. You can hardly, hardly tell that he's by. So they kind of had to uh, uh, diminish his African heritage to get his second you know, to get him a commission. In he the was Army. white enough. Yeah. <laughs> in many ways. Which is, you know, it reminds me of. Um, black enough to have be served in a black right. regiment, but. Chris Rock does a thing, a, a routine where he talks about the neighborhood he lives in and that he lives. Obviously, Chris Rock lives in a beautiful house. He says, You know who my next door neighbor is? He's a dentist. <laughs> He's like. <laughs> He's like, the black man has to soar where a white man can just walk. <laughs> you know, he like Chris Rock has to be the greatest comedian of our generation. Yeah. And next door to him is a dentist. And I'm not trying to belittle dentists, right. but what Chris Rock has achieved as an entertainer is certainly miraculous. Right. But it goes Na- name five dentists. You don't right. know. I mean, the idea that what an African American has to achieve to do to achieve a status that the somebody in the majority doesn't have to do to achieve that same status. And this is a great example of that, of what he has to do to become just a second lieutenant. Okay. So he goes back, and of course he still leads men. Now now he's a, a second lieutenant. And there's a, an action toward the end of the war. I think it's in Camden, South Carolina. And there's trains that are up and running that might be uh, carry supplies for the South, for Southern soldiers. He leads his men as a second lieutenant. One of them has steam up, so they're about ready to take off in this train. And he runs, of course, he leads, he runs in, hops in the train, you know, and he wants to prevent it from leaving. Uh, some of the sharpshooters that he's posted uh, think that it. It, that is a southerner in there, and the train's about ready. And so he gets shot. By his own man. Oh, yeah, friendly fire right. or whatever. And uh, shortly after this, he gets promoted to first lieutenant. <laughs> so all he had to do is pay for his promotions in blood. That's all he had to do. Right. You know? So, all right. So he's discharged in 1865. The, you know, the war has a successful conclusion. But I, the significance of these black soldiers... Was, was this. At the beginning of the war, if you read the Cornerstone speech... Uh, By Steve, Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of, eventually, the Confederacy. Right. He says that the war... that, that the, the reason the South is seceding is because they don't believe in the proposition that all men are created equal. They believe... Negroes are inferior and that their natural condition is subjugation, slavery. And, and that the South will rest, rest its society on this great cornerstone. Right. That the Africa that the black is less than the white person. Yeah, it's not, in fact, he even points out that the Declaration of Independence is wrong, that yeah. all men are not created yeah. equal. Yeah. He so attacks a, the very substance of what it was to be an American. Yeah. He's attacking the idea that that created America. Right. That's what the war was about. And somebody, you know, it was about states' rights. Well, that's not what they said. 
Right. Look, look, look at what they said. And so at, at the end of the war, these, these northern soldiers, black soldiers, have been very successful. And the North outnumbered the South anyhow. Now you have black units, and now you have freed slaves joining these black units. I mean, the South is getting crushed by mathematics. So there become a lot of people start talking about, well, maybe we need our own black soldiers. Now, it's going to be a little harder sell <laughs> because, right. you know, uh, you're, you're, uh, you have freed slaves there. But they recognize that they're going to have to offer slaves their freedom. Right. So the, the, eventually the North, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln said he'll, he'll win the war when he finds a general who can understand the math. And understanding the math meant that the North had more men, money, and materials. And if you just lean on the South hard— uh, you'll grind them away. And that man is Grant. Grant right. understands that, and Grant just pursues And, and Grant was one of the guys behind really promoting black units. Right. But when the South is considering this, a Southern general comes forward and goes, if we allow black soldiers, and if, if they make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. Well, then you have guys like Stephen Swales and units like the 54th, and even before the end of the war, Jefferson Davis authorizes some freed slaves to become soldiers in the Confederate Army. So even the, the actions Which of they never do, by the way. They never actually get to the battlefield. No, because this is done in, you know, what, March of March, 1865. And the war's over by April 1865. Right. But before the end of the war, 54th in their example, had proven what Stephen said was wrong. Right. That they are equal. The soldiers had proven their merit, which is, you know, uh, they had kind of destroyed the theory that slavery was based on before the end of the war, practically speaking. So at that point, I'm going to draw a line here on us, Jeff, because I think we left off right at the end of the war. And our next pod, I would like to pick up with us discussing post-war issues, what Swale did post-war and we can tie this all into reconstruction and the promise of reconstruction and then the ultimate failure of reconstruction to really solve not solve but to do a right way of cor the corrections that needed to be made and this period of post-civil war is going to go a long way in explaining why we even had to have a civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s all right yep that so, sounds good now Let's get back to the beer, though. I want to do one thing the about these right. black breweries. Now, one of the things that happened uh, in this can be our preview for our next okay. part, in Reconstruction and afterwards is black people had a very hard time starting businesses because they weren't allowed. They weren't allowed to be educated, and even buying their own homes. Being, Obviously, there were restrictions in deeds and so forth, and there was redlining where you couldn't get a mortgage in certain districts. So if you think about the middle-class family, having a home is a very important, uh, you know, probably the most important way you're going to pass some wealth down. And these guys that are trying to start these breweries are having a little trouble raising capital, and that is historic. So if you would like to really, really celebrate Black History Month, you can go on the Harris Family Brewery GoFundMe page, hmm. and you can make a contribution. I tried to do this this morning, and for some reason it wasn't working, but I'm going to give 25 bucks in the name of our podcast. 
Okay. So you owe me twelve fifty after I do it. <laughs> and then uh, if you're interested in, in investing in Two Locals Brewery in Philadelphia, you can just contact them at two locals brewing. Okay. At gmail.com. Is that two is in the number two or Yeah, it's it's that's a good point. It's the uh, number two, then locals brewing at gmail.com and you can uh, potentially uh, invest in that if you would like. Again, I don't know a way a better way of selling celebrating black history months than investing in a black owned business. All right, perfect way to end it. We'll be back with you next week. 